From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for joining us on EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is uh, continuing to recover from uh, his uh, shoulder surgery. Uh, Hopefully we'll be back in the saddle next week with his fastball intact. Uh, But fear not, we have an exciting player coming out of the bullpen today. He's getting loose as we speak. And uh, those of you watching on YouTube and Facebook Live, the secret has been broken. The rest of you will have to wait just a couple more minutes. If you want to be part of the program, and I promise you, you're going to want to, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host today, filling in for Father Wade, the one and only dynamic Deacon, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. How are you? I'm doing well, Jack. It's great to be back uh, on EW10 Live again. Oh, it's great to have you on the program. And I'm going to tell you something right now, brother. That backdrop is right off the cover of Sacristy's and Vestibules magazine. <laughs> yeah, uh, right now I am at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Naples, Florida. Uh, tonight, Today is the last day of the parish mission. Uh, the priest here is awesome, Father Casey Jones. I met him on a Good News Marriage Cruise last January, <laughs> and uh, now I'm here at the parish, and he just had a nine-day novena for repose of the soul of uh, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and so uh, since they took the photo down, I said just to have it up here, you know, for as a little backdrop for the show today. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I wanted to kind of start there a little bit because <clears throat> for as much as you have the reputation as being a dynamic preacher and, and all of the mission work that you do, you know, knowing you as I do, I think that you, uh, your essence is that of a student. And Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's essence was that of a teacher. So I know he had to appeal to you on any number of levels. Oh, absolutely. Now, and, and things I, I love, both uh, St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. You know, both were teachers. You know, John, St. John Paul II had two doctoral degrees, one in philosophy, one in theology. Um, and uh, Pope Benedict's uh, doctoral dissertation was on St. Bonaventure. So he And St. Augustine, very expert in those areas. But what I love about um, Pope Benedict as a towering intellect as he was, uh, he was very accessible. You know, in, in a sense, I would say he was more 
accessible than, than John Paul II in some ways because he was a, a, a teacher, a professor, right? And so his job is to take that giant intellect that he had and all the wonderful things that he learned about theology and get it across in a way that's meaningful in, in people's lives, especially the lives of his students. You know, so, and that, that's what I love about him in, in reading him. And I think, in, well, um, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Tremendous, tremendous food for thought. Yeah, this is a tremendous food for thought. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I think most of us witnessed uh, during his pontificate, I can remember uh, when he was elected. It was in the middle of the afternoon here in the United States. Neither my wife nor myself had any reason, my late wife Susie, neither of us had any reason to have been home at that hour. But for some reason, we both were at the same time. And, of course, is there, you know, beyond Abemus Papam, we can't understand what the deacon is saying at that point as he's reading the proclamation. But we certainly understood Ratzinger, and we both started crying immediately. And I think the beautiful thing was that that the anticipated reputation that he brought to the papacy really proved to not be an accurate characterization of his demeanor at all, did it? Oh, no, not at all. You know, what the beautiful thing, and I also was ecstatic, you know, because for me, thinking about my experience, St. John Paul II was like the only saint I'd have ever known. You know, when I remember being nine and 10 years old, starting to serve mass, it was John Paul, our Pope, Peter, our Bishop, and all the clergy. You know, so John Paul II was literally growing up almost my half my life is the only Pope I've ever known. So when he died, I felt like, oh, like I lost a, a family member, like I lost a father, like a parent. But then when Pope Bennett was elected, I was so elated because there's a beautiful continuity now. And of course, you know, he's the, uh, you know, the, the Rottweiler of the Vatican and all of that. But what is his first message to the world? Deus caritas est, God is love. <laughs> you know? so, and when you read it, it's so beautiful, you know, because that, that first kind of message sets the tone, in a sense, for the papacy. And that's the way he wanted to start out bringing messages of love and of course you know faith hope and love the 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 theological virtues and um you know faith and and uh, love and um uh hope he wrote about it. of course faith was uh uh completed and, and published by pope francis but uh i think a beautiful way to initiate his pontificate and i, I don't think we appreciate uh at this moment in history how fortunate we uh, as as Catholics primarily, but as as uh, citizens of planet Earth in general, how fortunate we are to have had this man amongst us uh, in our midst in our day and time, because he is really theologically and, quite frankly, pastorally on par with any saint in our history. No, I, I absolutely agree. And he's going to be one of those people that history is going to look back on and, and, and look at the tremendous contributions he made to the church. You know, because right now his books, he's written tons of books, but, you know, most of those books are really only read by professional theologians or folks like myself who are professional evangelists and, and, and speakers and writers and things like that. Uh, and maybe even a parish may go through, like when he did his trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth. You know, I know parishes went through those books. I mean, so so I think even deeper, his his works on the liturgy, 
right? His works on eschatology, you know, um, uh, our lives pointing toward our ultimate end, the beatific vision with God forever. There's so many things that he's written that people have never even read or had access to. And there's things that are written in German that have yet to be translated into English. So we're still going to be hearing from Pope Benedict uh, the 16th for a long time. And you mentioned his trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth, which is just absolutely, uh, you know, ph phenomenal. Um, but I don't know if we have really experienced anyone, whether we realized it or not, who had a closer relationship or who loved Jesus more than Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. And I think, quite frankly, that his love for Jesus, and they say his final words were. Jesus, I love you, or Lord, I love you, something to that to that effect. His deep personal love for our Lord is probably what kind of fostered that false reputation because he loved him too much to compromise the truths that he taught. No, absolutely. You know, um, you know, it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, I've been listening to a number of commentators on Pope Benedict XVI, and one of them said something that was very interesting. When he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under St. John Paul II, uh, that all the documents that were put out about the dogmatic statements of the Church or clarifying teaching weren't written by him. You know, uh, uh, he put his stamp on it, he signed off on it. But the, the vast majority of documents were not written by him, were written by others because he wanted to hear a number of voices. Of course, he read through it and made sure it was it was solid. But I was surprised to hear that he didn't actually pen a lot of those documents. Again, that shows the breadth of his theological vision. I, he didn't have a narrow vision. It's only what I think. He wanted to hear voices of others as well. Um, so I think that, again, speaks to the, the beauty of the man and speaks to how the Spirit worked in him in helping to, uh, uh, to clearly articulate the, the truth and the goodness and the beauty of the Catholic faith. And may his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed rest in peace. Just getting started Amen. on an open line Tuesday. Pick up the phone and give us a call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, straight ahead, we'll talk to James in Boston, Massachusetts, and we want to talk to you as well. So grab one of these open phone lines, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's <clears throat> excuse me, Open Line Tuesday with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN's National Catholic Register is America's most trusted Catholic news source with a comprehensive view of the world from a Catholic perspective. Uh, give a gift subscription or subscribe for yourself and save up to 42%. Just visit ncregister.com today. 
And you can receive daily, weekly, or alert emails from the register. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. People in Naples, Florida tonight will be standing in line to ask a question of Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. I'm giving you unfettered access to him today. Just pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. First up today is James in Boston, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. James, what is your question today? Hello, my name is James, as you know, and I was wondering, so I go to a Catholic school, and my teacher in religion said that most of the Old Testament is symbolic, as, like, the Noah's Ark story was symbolic as we are, like, saved by water. Okay, yeah, I I think, see what you're saying. So, a couple things. First of all, James, thank you so much for calling. How how old are you? Eleven. Eleven, that's awesome. All right, well, a couple things. First of all, James, everything that the Bible teaches is true, okay? So what the Bible is interested in, particularly Old Testament, is salvation history. So in other words, the Bible is not interested in what we call, James, linear history. Like, this happened on July 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence was signed. This happened on, you know, November 30th you know, 2021. It's not interested in that type of history. What the Bible is interested in, uh, James, is how God enters into his creation, into human history, how he interacts with us in order to love us and to save us and to bring us to life with him forever. Okay. Now, because God is infinite and God is omnipotent, he is beyond human understanding and and beyond our ability to even grasp the fullness of who God is. So because of that, James, we have to use symbolic language, right? So the way we try to express uh, our understanding of God is symbolic. For example, right, we say the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is uh, the reality of who God is. In fact, Jesus Christ tells us himself, you know, in, in the very end of Matthew's gospel, I baptize you in the name, go therefore to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? Why does Jesus use that language? Because that's the language of family, right? So in order to understand how we are to relate to, the, to God, Jesus uses the language of family, right? But God obviously exists beyond the way we understand family here on earth. Same way, James, in the Old Testament, there's symbolic language that's used, but everything that the Bible teaches in the Old Testament is true. So I think what your what your teacher is saying that, for example, Noah's Ark is symbolic. Well, Noah's Ark is real, okay? But we use language to express what does Noah's Ark mean in relation to Jesus, okay? Um, so, so for example, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, the Ark, Noah's Ark brought people to safety from the flood. Jesus, in a sense, is the Ark, right? Because he, because uh, on the cross, he brings us to safety from, from the depths of sin to life with him forever. 
right? And so the, the crossing of the Red Sea, they went from uh, slavery in Egypt to cross over into the desert to begin their journey, their 40-year journey to the promised land. So baptism, we leave our sin behind and we go through the waters of baptism that leads us eventually to the, you know, after living our life on earth to the promised land of heaven. So we use language that's symbolic, but that symbolism expresses the reality of how God interacts with us because God loves us and God wants to save us. Does that make sense, James? Yeah. All right, very good. Thank you so much for the phone call. We appreciate it there in Boston. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Christy, a first-time caller in the great state of Georgia listening to us on The Quest. Christy, you are on with Deacon Harold. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. My question today is how do I receive to my roommate um, that tells me that I cannot practice my faith under her roof because we only pray to Jesus, and she feels that I am uh, worshiping an idol. Um, most specifically, she does not like that I have statues. Um, she knows that I'm Catholic. We have dis- have had many discussions. However, when it starts Stepping on her toes, she gives me a hand and then cuts, shuts me down. Okay. Okay, thanks, Christy. Uh, great question. So, so here's the thing. Uh, many of our, our Christian brothers and sisters who, who aren't Catholic believe that we do worship statues, have idols and things like that. Because uh, what and they're, they're not being mean or you know or malicious. They're they're looking back at the Ten Commandments, right? From Gen- from Exodus chapter twenty. They're looking at the commandments. You should have you know you should not have any idols, no other gods before me. So they they think the outward appearance looks to them like because we have statues and icons and 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 things like that that we're that we're uh, worshiping those things and not worshiping God. So here's how I would say it: Ask your roommate. Wow, do you have, you know, because right now, Chrissy, does your roommate have pictures of her family around your house or your apartment? Yeah. Okay. Ask her, do you worship those? Well, no, I don't worship them. They're, they're just pictures. They, they remind me of how much I love my family. Well, that's what our statues are. We're old school, Christy. You know, the church was before cameras, before iPhone. Before any of that, right? So the way that we depicted our family, the way we remember our family members is not through photograph, is through statues, is through stained glass windows, is through icons. And just like your roommate are not worshiping those pictures, we don't worship those things. They're simply reminders of members of our family that, as we say, that the priest says in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that have gone before us marked with the sign of faith. And we remember them. We remember their lives. We remember how they lived so they can be a witness and example to us today of how we should live on our journey toward God. So I think that's a simple answer. Does that make sense? It. Thank you. I do appreciate that. I do feel that, um, I mean, I will try if it comes up, but she has already told me um, that she respects my beliefs However, I need to, she humbly asked me to understand her position and her deep belief, but yet she's quenching me from practicing 
my faith because it makes her uncomfortable. So I'm still at a loss at what to well, do when well, she's one, one thing you could do, I mean, you could put those statues and pictures in your room. I mean, I, if she has an issue with them putting in different places in the house or apartment where she see them, you know, just I would just put them in, in in places that are your personal space in your bedroom, right? In places where you know where she won't have to have to see them, but that you can see them. And you can still, um, you know, uh, feel close to God because you're remembering people um, that are important in the life of you in our life as Catholics and the life of the church. So that may be one simple way to do that, Christy. God bless you, Christy. We'll keep you in our prayers for sure. Eight three three two eight eight. EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is Omaha, Nebraska. Bob is in Omaha listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Bob, you're on with Deacon Harold. Well, good day. Thank, thank you for taking my call. And my, my call is I'm doing the Bible in the year and Genesis, and it's uh, reference time. You know, uh, Eve was tempted by Satan. And my question is, there was a, uh, the Archangel Michael had the big battle with Satan. When, can you give me some insight when that battle occurred? Because I'm thinking the seven days, and Eve was tempted, you know, in the uh, Garden of Eden. When did the battle with Satan get thrown out of heaven? So that's my question. That's a great question, Bob. And thank you for listening. Spirit Catholic Radio, you know, uh, is awesome. Yeah, I, I do... Uh, uh, a Bible study on there uh, every every couple of months for them. So that's great. So I would say, Bob, look at the first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, right? It, that's when God creates the earth, right? And so uh, God said he separated the—God he create, God created the light, and he separated the light from the darkness, right? But, Bob, the sun and the moon are not created till day 4, but God creates, separates the light from the darkness in day one. Where does that light come from? What is the light he's talking about? Heaven. And when he separates the light from the darkness, that's what's going on, in, as you referenced in, in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan, or Lu Lucifer, uh, makes a decision to say no to what God wants to do. Think, of, think about it like this, Bob. Angels, uh, like us, have free will. But unlike us, angels are created with infused knowledge. So in other words, when angels are created, they, they are created knowing everything that they're supposed to know, and they can make a decision, yes or no, for God. So when Satan was created, his name was Lucifer, which, again, that name means light bearer. It doesn't say it in the Bible, but that name says to me that Lucifer was most likely a cherubim or a seraphim. Those are the angels that serve closest to the throne of God. So he's probably one of the brightest angels God's ever created. But he knew that God was going to uh, condescend, to come down to a human level. Uh, the word was going to become flesh and dwell among humanity. And he, so Satan says, wait a minute, you're going to lower yourself to the level of one of your creatures and become one of them to save them? And if that's not bad enough, you're going to make us messengers for them? And you're going to make us guardians for them? And, and, and Satan said, non serviam, I will not serve. And so we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the battle between Michael and the other archangels. Um, and by the way, Michael in Hebrew, Michael means who is like God. And, and, and again, Michael's an archangel, so he's a lower level of angel than Lucifer, but 
he rallied around with the other archangels. They battled devil. And this is book of Revelation chapter 12. And it says that Satan and the other demons were exorkizo in Greek. Exor they were cast out of heaven. That's where the word exorcism comes from. They were cast out. And when they were and very clear, when they were cast out of heaven, they went to earth. And so Satan's what Satan's trying to do on earth is to destroy covenant relationship with God. And so that separation happens on in a sense day one in the book of Genesis. That makes sense? Bob, I hear the music, so does that make sense for you? 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We just lost Gannett in the great state of North Carolina, and he wanted to know how many times can you receive communion in a day if you go to Mass twice? Okay. Um, you you can receive communion twice uh, in one day. So... So if you go, for example, um, let's just say that you go to the mass and uh, the the priest is ill, right? And so they have a um, uh, communion service, service or something, yeah. right? And then, uh, but then you say, oh, you know, I really want to go to mass, you know? So you can receive again because now you're receiving at mass. Or, for example, if you go to daily mass and then later you're going to a funeral, right? So you can receive then as well. But then, you know, anytime after that, um, then, then you want to receive, unless you, you're a priest, right? So a priest that says like four or five masses on a weekend, uh, he receives obviously every time because he's standing in the person of Christ, he must receive. You know, also when I deacon at mass, I also receive because I represent, um, you know, the, the people at mass. So I, I receive communion as well. But for But typically that's how it works. And Father Wade, generally, we have this question from time to time. He throws in the caveat that you can receive twice, but he says that the second time you receive must be in the context of a Mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eight. So, like, that, yeah, the first example we gave, right. So yeah. the communion service and then receiving it at Mass, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. JC is in Fort Wayne, Indiana, listening on the Amazon Echo. JC, you're on with Deacon Harold. Uh, Deacon uh, my question is, what culpability do we have for following lawful orders? Um, I'm thinking of Joab, the commander over Uriah the Hittite. Uh, so obviously the prophet Nathan confronted King David, but Joab you know, was following lawful orders uh, from David. What culpability does he bear? You mean culpability as far as uh, sin? Yeah, as far as, you know, he obviously knew by sending Uriah the Hittite to the front where the fighting Oh, okay, I see what you're saying now. Yes, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and just to give context for some people, just just very quickly. So David, see, what happened was David is considered the greatest king in the history of Israel because David was the only king who never followed another god, who never followed a, a worship of false god. But David wasn't perfect. So as David got old, he started getting a little bit lazy. Because remember, what made David famous, he was a, a warrior. He would lead his troops into battle. Well, and what J.C. is talking about here in this particular instance, David decided to stay home. And so when he was out overseeing the kingdom, he looks down, he sees this beautiful woman sunbathing, who's uh, Bathsheba, who's the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he decides to have an affair with her and she gets pregnant. And so David tries to cover up the pregnancy, first of all, by he brings Uriah back from the front lines. He says, you know, hey, I hear things are going well. Why don't you go and be with your wife tonight? But Uriah knew that because he was in the midst of a battle, he couldn't have relations with his wife. So he, so he didn't go down to his, his house. So then David tries to get him drunk the next day. That doesn't work. And so he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a note to, that says, you know, he gives it to the commander. He says, you know, it says, put him on the front line. And, you know, uh, when the fighting is fierce, pull back and he'll be slain in battle. So, look, he, he's a battle hero. No, David's a murderer. <laughs> David's, he, he was an adulterer and a murderer. He is fully culpable for his act. And that's what Nathan was letting him know. The, 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 the interesting thing about David, though, is when he's confronted, he immediately says, I have sinned. He immediately doesn't try to deny it. Doesn't try to cover it up. Doesn't try to make excuses. He admits that he was wrong. And then he has to incur the penalty for sin. Nathan says, you will not die. But what do you mean? What do you mean he's not going to die? In 1 Kings chapter 2, the, the, right at the beginning of 1 Kings 2, that's the, the story of David's death. But mavet in Hebrew, death means to cut yourself off from God's life. So he says, you're not going to be cut off from God's life, but the child that is conceived is going to die. Right. Because our again, the temporal effects of sin, our sins have lives in the effects of others. Right. And so that's when David wrote Psalm 51. Right. He said, have mercy on me, God, in your kindness and your compassion blot out my face. He's crying out to God. But the penalty still had to be incurred for the sin. So he, he definitely was culpable for that sin. And he but he did ask God for forgiveness for that sin. But he was definitely fully culpable. Now, the question is, how culpable is the commander that received the instruction and carried it out? Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the so I think you can kind of compare it to like, like the, the Nazis, right? Or, go kill this particular Jew. Well, I just have to follow orders. I was just following orders. Right. But. Joe, he had no context. He just got the note. He doesn't know what David is, but he doesn't know the context. He just said, okay, this is, David's the king. He's, he's the, the commander in chief. He says, you know, put him out there and then pull back. Uh, okay, maybe David's planning something here. Maybe, I don't know. So not sure how culpable he was for that, unless he knew what David intended and carried out with the same mindset uh, what David intended when, when he gave him that note. But I don't think there's any way to fully know that from the text. God bless you, JC. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, Colton is watching on YouTube, and he asks, When a private revelation becomes part of the liturgy, such as Divine Mercy Sunday or the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, does it then become part of sacred tradition with a capital T and therefore public revelation? 
Uh, no, no. So, so bit what we call big T or what you called, um, Colton, uh, capital T tradition ended with the death of the last apostle, right? So the, with the death of John, that's when, uh, scripture and, and big T tradition ended. So we have what's called the deposit of faith, scripture and tradition protected, guarded, defended, and faithfully articulated by the magisterium or the teaching authority of the church. So, um, days like, you know, um, uh, divine mercy Sunday or, you know, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Guadalupe, right, on December 12th. Um, those are recognitions uh, of, the, of, of Mary or, or, you know, different devotions that we have to Jesus, but it doesn't become a part of the received tradition that was handed down from Jesus to the apostles to us today, right? So those are just wonderful um, remembrances of different uh, ways that Jesus have come into our life, the gift of his most sacred heart, the gift of his blessed mother coming at Guadalupe, or coming at Fatima, or coming at Lourdes. Uh, but that does not become part of the received sacred tradition that came from Jesus through the apostles. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've still got time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call uh, right away. Glenn writes in, does the Catholic faith believe that if you are not Catholic, you are not going to heaven? Uh, no. Okay. So th that's a great question uh, because there's some confusion here because of the church's teaching extra ecclesia nala solus. So uh, there's no salvation outside of the church. Okay. That is true. That is a true teaching of the church. But what we have to understand is what does that mean? Right. And the Second Vatican Council, I think, in its document on Lumen Gentium, its document Light of the Nations on the, on the Church, helps us to uh, to answer that question. So what the church teaches is that if someone or the, the, the only way that you can come to the full salvation is through Jesus. Right. Jesus. Jesus says this is not the Catholic Church. Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through me. Right. And so the church says it doesn't come through the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ, okay? That was the institution that Jesus left that he gave to the world to draw us to, into full communion with him. So, but if someone through no, fault, through no fault of their own does not come to know Jesus, you know, the missionary never made it to their village, they've never heard of Jesus, they were raised as Muslims or as Buddhists, and that, you know, that was, their whole life was just Islam or Buddhism, or uh, Hinduism, and they've never really come to know or articulate who Jesus is, but but live their faith according to the natural moral law, right? Which is the the fundamental principle of that. Of the, it's called Sindaresis: do good and avoid evil. So if they live according to the the foundational principles of natural moral law, the best way that they can, that they still have an opportunity to be saved, but that's after death. Right. So when they die, they're going to see Jesus. Right. And so they'll they'll know the fullness of truth at that point, And they will have an opportunity, still have an opportunity to say yes or no to what God is offering them through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, that's that's what the church teaches. I hope that makes that uh, clear. I know you're writing in, Glenn, but I hope that helps. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. I've got a great question for an Oregonian. Earl writes in, what is the church's stance on assisted suicide? Okay. Uh, assisted suicide is is murder. Is, is, uh, okay, so let's, let's make a distinction here, okay? Assisted suicide versus euthanasia, right? Because sometimes people get confused on that. So euthanasia is when a doctor, physician, or something, a uh, nurse, who, whoever, gives you medication— that that uh, that kills you, okay? So they give you, uh, and, and they're intending by giving you this overdose of medication to end your life, okay? That's euthanasia. Assisted suicide is when a physician or a nurse or someone else gives you the medication, and then you yourself take that medication in order to end your own life. That's assisted suicide. So we have to understand the difference here. So what happened in Oregon, uh, in fact, it, it, when I first moved to Oregon, they were, um, uh, getting ready to, you know, to vote on this. Uh, they voted that assisted suicide was legal, so that a, it was, in fact, a physician-assisted suicide. So a physician could write a prescription, a lethal prescription, that you could take, and, and the, 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 the physician wouldn't administer it, but you would take it yourself to end your own life. That is wrong, right? Because who's in charge of life? God, right? And so our life belongs belongs to God, right? And we have no right to take our own life. Now, as far as culpability goes for, for a, a suicidal act, um, mental illness, and there may be other mitigating circumstances that, that may lessen the culpability for that act. So for example, um, uh, uh, I know a guy who was a deacon whose son became a priest. In fact, the son was assigned to the same parish where the, where the dad served as a deacon. So imagine this, the dad is serving for his son, at, who's a priest. The son had mental illness, a schizophrenia. The, the son, the priest, actually ended up taking his own life, okay? But he still had a Catholic funeral. Why? Because there was documented mental illness that lessened the culpability for that act. So he wasn't saying, I know what I'm about to do is wrong, taking my life, and I freely choose to do it anyway. Because he had mental illness, he was not totally free, right, to, to act. And so that lessens the culpability for that act. But someone that's with assisted suicide, you know, because uh, what they're supposed to do is the physician is supposed to determine that the person is clear and lucid, that there's, you know, uh, that they know what they're doing. So that in itself makes the, the, the act wrong and the person fully culpable if they're following the, the rules, at least in Oregon, of how it's supposed to work. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out the Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning and every morning, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Um, Claire wants to know, when we pray to saints, how do we know for sure that they're in heaven? Well, the way that we know for sure is in heaven is they've been canonized by the church, right? So can't so we're, we're first of all, Claire, we're all called to be saints, right? <laughs> Every single one of us is called to be saints, but the church has a process called canonization, where the church declares officially that we know that 
some of the people who have lived exemplary lives of holiness and virtue are in heaven. So the official declaration by the church that says someone is a saint is recognizing that we know that that person is in heaven, enjoying the beatific vision, living face-to-face with God forever, okay? That doesn't mean that there aren't other people in heaven besides the, those declared as saints by the church, right? So uh, we just don't know. We just don't know for sure. We won't know until we, you know, God willing, we get there ourselves, okay? So when we're praying to the saints, we know for sure that, that they're interceding for us before God because the church has declared. Remember the power of the keys in Matthew 16, 18 and Matthew 18, 18, where God, uh, Jesus gives the authority to Peter and the apostle. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So because of the power of the keys, when the church makes a declaration, God fulfills his part and, and, and makes it happen. So we know for sure that they're in heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Tyler wants to know how priests gained the title Monsignor. Okay, so um, basically Monsignor is a title that means he's a, basically a chaplain for the Pope. It's an honorific title, all right? But it carries with it, it's not, he's not a bishop, but he, but he gets to wear some of the uh, some of the uh, the symbols of that office of Monsignor. So Pope, now before a bishop could make a um, uh, a recommendation to the Vatican that a certain priest who you know uh, who has served the church in a particularly uh, special way, uh, in an extraordinary way, an exemplary way, the bishop you know uh, writes the Holy See and requests that this. Um, uh, priest be given the title of Monsignor. Pope Francis, when he became Holy Father, tweaked that so that, uh, and I think this is still in place, that the, the priest has to be, I think, over 60, has to be older before he's given the, the uh, eligible to receive the title of Monsignor. But that's a designation that the bishop makes to the Holy See, or that the Holy See could make itself that they can, uh, to, to, to honor a priest who has served, who has served exemplary, he's given that title of Monsignor. Again, he, it means he's a, a chaplain uh, to the Pope, to the Holy Father. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Mary is in Detroit, Michigan, a first-time caller, listening at EWTN.com. Mary, you are on with Deacon Harold. Hi. One, okay, so one of the questions I have is, and I'm a practicing Catholic, if we are, is it, if we have free will, then isn't that in paradox by saying, well, I didn't accept God's call, he blessed me with it? And there's a follow-up to that. Okay. Um I'm trying to I'm trying to understand your question here. So, so he he blo- So you think that God may have given you a false call? Is that what you're saying? No. Uh, for example, I was talking to one of my son's friends, and I said, "Good for you for being so devout." And he said, "Oh, it wasn't me. It was God's grace. God blessed me." So then I'm oh, thinking. Oh, I see. Yeah. So 
Okay, then why why are my kids blessed to be as devout? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. And uh, I had an example like that yesterday. I spoke to school kids here in Naples, Florida, and one of the kids asked, he goes, how many people have uh, have you helped, you know, find the Catholic faith? Have you brought, have, how many people have you brought into the Catholic faith? I said, zero. I said, I don't bring people to the Catholic faith. Jesus Christ brings people to the faith. I'm just the instrument. God's the musician. See, so what I was doing there, Mary, I was deflecting attention away from myself and pointing it all toward Jesus, right? What does John the Baptist say? I must decrease. He must increase. So I think what your son's friend was doing is exercising uh, are recognizing the fact in humility that, yes, God is doing something in and through me, but all of the honor and praise and glory has to go to God, right? And, and, and so I think that's what was going on there. I did the same thing yesterday. I recognize that God is working through me, that, but that all the, the honor and praise has to go to God, that I'm just the instrument. And what, I'm, what we're trying to do in our Catholic faith is be finely tuned instruments in God's hands, so God can use us as weak and as sinful as we may be for his honor and for his glory. Does God placing a call on someone's life uh, encroach on their free will? No, because you can be free to say yes or no. For example, during the Annunciation, right, the angel Gabriel comes to the Blessed Mother. He says, this is what God wants to do. And he waited, <laughs> right? He, he waited for her to say yes or no. Right? So she had free will. She could have said yes or no. But she says, be it done unto me according to thy word. So the fact that the angel Gabriel came and says, here's what God wants to do. He doesn't say, well, okay, you have no choice. This is what God's going to do in your life. No, he waited for an answer for her. So just because God wants to do something, you're still free to say yes or no to God's invitation to share in his life in a special way or in a particular way. Thanks, Mary. We appreciate the call. Next up is James, another first-time caller in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. James, thanks for holding. You're on with Deacon Harold. Yes, sir. My name is James, and I have a question. Uh, my brother just recently passed away, and uh, they're going to do a a uh, celebration of life, and we were all raised Catholic, and and he's being cremated, and uh, there's a saying, I mean, I've heard in the Catholic Church that you're not allowed to take your ashes and do what you want with them, even though he he requested to, to have the ashes put in the uh, ocean or something like this. And, uh, and so in the Catholic Church, we don't believe that. And I was wondering if he could... Explain that a little bit more in detail. Yeah, first of all, James, I, I, I want to say uh, how sorry I am to hear of the loss of your brother, and I will be praying for the repose of his soul and, and praying for you and your family during this time of grief and, and mourning. Um, now, um, the, as far as cremation, if, if your brother's Catholic, the Church does allow for cremation, okay? Um, now, the, the, the thing is this, the, the church has a deep respect for the human body, right? First Corinthians chapter 6, 19, St. Paul says our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 
that we have within us from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So because we consider the body uh, as a sacred vessel, as Paul articulates, we, when you're cremated, all of the ashes have to remain together. You can't take it and put some in a necklace. You can't plant it in a tree in the ground. You can't throw it in the ocean. And I understand the sentiment you want to be one with nature or this was a special place for my brother. And so he wants to be, you know, so when the tree grows up, some of my brother's ashes are growing into the tree. I mean, I kind of I kind of understand, especially coming from the Pacific Northwest where I live, you know, uh, but but the church has a deep respect for the human body, understands that at, when Jesus comes back at the end of time to reclaim the kingdom for his father, we're going to get our bodies back. Our bodies are going to be res- resurrected. So the, the urn where the ashes are cremated has to be buried either in the ground, just like a regular body uh, in the ground, uh, uh, in a cemetery, or they could be put in a columbarium. And so I, I'm noticing as I travel around that many parishes are having columbariums now where the ashes are interred in kind of in a, an above ground kind of mausoleum, if you will. Right. And, and so uh, and, and that's OK as well, because the ashes are together. It's uh, it's 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 in the columbarium and, uh, you know, and, and the body's protected and respected there. So those would be the options, uh, James. I hope that helps. Well, I tell you, there some of these columbariums are. I mean, I just I don't have any connection to anybody who may be laid to rest there, but you just want to go pray there. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. something else. They're beautiful, and, and 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 quite frankly, James, too, for a lot of people, it's it's financially, you know, more feasible to 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 do the cremation in the columbarium. You know, it's it's far less because now for me, I want to be buried in the ground with my body. I don't want to be cremated, but but for some people. You know that that's uh, you know that that's an option uh, that the church allows. And quickly before we're finished here, um, Brent has an interesting question. He said, "How could Saint Peter even think about betraying Jesus after witnessing all those miracles?" That man, Brent, that is a great. But I don't have to think about that myself. I mean, you you were there. You saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. You saw him raise a twelve-year-old girl. Talita Kum, little girl arise. You saw him walk on water. In fact, Peter was the one that walked out on the water. You saw him feed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and a fish. And still you betrayed him? That shows us, uh, Brent, that we are human beings are sinful, <laughs> uh, uh, that we're weak, and that when, you know, sometimes when the, the outward pressure from the culture comes, and, you know, things, we, we, we kind of revert back to that basic instinct of self preservation. You know, and so we're all sinners in need of God's mercy. On behalf of our host, uh, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>